genealogy of Jesus Christ. And we think, okay, this is going to be really exciting. And then you read the rest of chapter 1, and guess what? It's really not that exciting. There's a lot of names of people that are, that are there. Now, remember, if you were a Jew hearing this for the first time, Matthew's audience was probably a, a more of a Jewish audience. Now, they had the Jewish scriptures, and the Jewish scriptures, according to our, uh, the Bibles that we use, the Protestant scriptures, are ends in Malachi. Right? So you have Malachi, which kind of prophesied the, the, the coming of John the Baptist. Malachi was the last prophet of the Old Testament. And then you had about 300 years of silence where no, one, no prophecy came of God's word. And now you have Matthew. And what Matthew's doing, Matthew is going to connect the Old Testament to the New. And he does it right with those opening words. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And he shows through this genealogy, not giving every name, but showing that, that that Jesus Christ is the promised son of Abraham, and that Jesus Christ is the promised son of David. Right off the bat. Now think about this. We, we looked at Genesis for, what, four months on Sunday morning? And how many times did you hear me say, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, is the great promise of the Scripture, that God said to Abram, Go to the country that I will show you, that I will make you a blessing to all the people of the earth through your seed. Okay? Uh, and this is the, the, the great promise that God unpacks again and again in, in Genesis and, and beyond. So right there, what, what Matthew is doing is saying that Jesus Christ is that promised son of Abraham. Way back when in Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3. That through Jesus Christ, he's going to bless all the families of the earth. So when he's, he's kind of coming out with, with a bazooka. Okay, now if, he, if, he, if we're Jews and we hear that for the first time, we would have been like, what? He said, what? We just kind of gloss over, but that's a powerful punch. He's not only the promised son of, of Abraham, but he's also the promised son of David. That great promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, that says that there's going to be a forever king on a forever throne. Speaking of Jesus Christ, these, these great fulfillments of the Old Testament. So Matthew is probably one of the best literary books that has ever been written in terms of the, the artistry and the mastery of, of the language that Matthew writes in. What Matthew is doing, even how he structures this book, is to show you that Jesus Christ is the promised one of the Old Testament. Now, that may not speak to your soul, but if you were a Jew and your whole life was waiting for the promised one, waiting for the Messiah to come, waiting for the one who's going to overthrow the Roman Empire, waiting and waiting and waiting, and then all of a sudden you get this word that Jesus Christ, He is the one. He is, is here. Absolutely spectacular. So the way Matthew orders this book, now Matthew is, um, is one of the 12 uh, apostles. Uh, Matthew wrote this gospel um, of all the four Gospels, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Two of them were only written by apostles, Matthew and, and John. Uh, Matthew kind of didn't necessarily write all the things from an eyewitness account, but he was more of kind of a, a biographer scribe, kind of implying what Jesus Christ did. Each of the four Gospels have a, a slightly different slant on how they were written because they were written to a different audience. Now, every time I stand and preach before the people of Park Baptist Church, I'm trying to take the Word of God and apply it specifically to you. 
I'm not trying to apply it to the people out there in, in cyberspace. I'm applying it to the people of Park Baptist Church, the people that I know, the people that I know their struggles, I know their pains, I know their, their issues. I'm trying to help you live your life for Christ from the Word of God. And so what Matthew's doing here is Matthew's probably writing uh, this gospel primarily for a group of Jewish Christians in Antioch. Okay? Uh, several uh, references throughout the um, the scriptures in, um, in Matthew, specifically how they talk about certain money uh, in, in the Greek language, would be one of two places, Damascus or Antioch. And it was probably written to Antioch with other, uh, other uh, evidence. The first time Matthew is referenced is by the bishop of Antioch, um, Ignatius. So what you see here is Matthew is written to, to Antioch. Now thinking about Antioch, what comes to your mind? Uh, we, we, we think about the, the Antioch was the first place where they were called Christians. Antioch was probably the, the number one mission-sending church uh, in the New Testament. This is where Paul and, and Barnabas were, were gathered around, being prayed over, and they were sent out on all these missions. And Paul would, would go and travel all the world, and he would come back and explain all that he said to Antioch. So Antioch was a place that was a striving church, and Matthew was writing to the Jewish Christians there. He was probably writing around 50 or 60 A.D. Now, if you're going to take a New Testament theology class or New Testament uh, one class going over the Gospels, what you would ask is, who wrote the Gospel first, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? Uh, well, everyone um, in, the, in the first century probably thought Matthew wrote the book first. In the Greek, there's actually a title to the Gospel of Matthew that says, according to Matthew. Okay. Modern scholars think that it was actually Mark who wrote his gospel first, just because of the information in Mark's gospel. Mark is, is shorter, and it seems like Luke and Matthew expand upon it. Um, it just kind of helps us explain some of the inconsistencies, the apparent inconsistencies of what the differences between all these different gospels. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. Synoptic uh, which means similar, all right? They're very similar in terms of how they're talking about the life of Jesus. They're just kind of explaining his life biographically. Now, most of the time when we read the Gospels, we think it's just the story of Jesus' life. It is that, but it's more than that. Each Gospel is written, to, as I said, to a specific audience for a specific purpose. You know, if we, if we look at the end of John's Gospel, John says that if, if you wrote down everything that Jesus Christ did, the whole world could not contain the books uh, of the things that Jesus Christ did in this world. He did so much. Now, sometimes you look at your Gospels and read the, the, the paragraphs that kind of summarized, right? Jesus stayed in this town, and people brought all their sick uh, to us. Now, I don't know about you, but if, if, if people kept on bringing uh, their sick team, you kept on healing them again and again and again, you'd have a lot of stories. Probably more stories than to fill 30 pages in, in, a, in a book. Okay? There's a lot of information happening in the life of Jesus. So Matthew is only sharing certain stories of Jesus, and he's ordering them such a way to highlight Jesus Christ to all the Jewish audience to know that you, you believe that he is the promised son of Abraham and the promised son of David. So the key idea here in the, in the Gospel of Matthew is he's trying to show that Jesus Christ fulfills all the promises of the Old Testament. So let's just go through the, uh, a few of them in, in these opening chapters. Look at verse 22. 
chapter 1, verse 22. It says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. That's a quote from Isaiah 7.14. Now remember when, I, when I, I've said this numerous times, when we think about prophecy in the Old Testament, we think about kind of a mountain. There's an initial prophecy, then there's a second prophecy that's usually fulfilling it, and there's a, there's a big valley in the middle, right? It takes a long time for, for things to happen. So if you read Isaiah 7, there's a, there's a, there's a, 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 ver, um, a son that is born in chapter 8 that fulfills some of the prophecy of Isaiah 7. But some, not all. There's going to come a promised son in the future, born of a virgin, that is going to fulfill all the prophecy. And that's what Matthew does here. Go down to uh, verse 6, verse 5 of chapter 2. It says, They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Okay, again, you see this prophecy that is fulfilled in Jesus. In chapter 2, verse um, 15, you see Jesus fleeing to, departing, departed to Egypt in verse 15 and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Verse 17, then this was fulfilled that was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentations, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Chapter 3, verse 3, for this is he who was spoken by, by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. You see this again and again, these prophecies being fulfilled. And, every, and even uh, the end of chapter 2, verse 23. And he went and lived in the city called Nazareth, so that was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So this is what, what happens um, oftentimes when you watch um, sports commentators. You ever, you ever watch sports? Sometimes football, maybe? Okay. Well, you're watching sports. What happens is, is you have a sportscaster who makes an incredible claim, right? So-and-so is the best quarterback that ever lived. And then afterward, they kind of give you the facts of why they believe that this statement is true. This is exactly what Matthew is doing. Matthew is saying Jesus Christ is the son of Abraham. He's the son of David. Let me show you why. He fulfilled this prophecy, he fulfilled this prophecy, he fulfilled this prophecy, he fulfilled this prophecy. And if you're hearing this audibly being read to you, that's how they would, they would normally hear it. You would hear the refrain, and this was done so that he would be, so they would be fulfilled. It was spoken by the prophets, might be fulfilled. That was spoken by the prophets, might be fulfilled. So if you're hearing this for the first time, you're hearing that refrain. Jesus Christ is fulfilling these prophecies again and again. The first four chapters really is just to show you that Jesus Christ fulfills these, these prophecies of the Old Testament. Now, there are some modern critics that would say that Jesus Christ um, only appeared to fulfill these, that the church actually went back and made these things, made these things up to connect them. Try it. Try that, right? 
Look at how much he fulfilled in the various prophecies that everybody in the Old Testament would have known and how Jesus fulfills every single one. It does not make sense unless God sent him as the promised son of Abraham and the promised son of David. Now, that is Matthew's goal. Right off the bat, he's trying to show you that he's the promised son of Abraham and the promised son of David to fulfill the prophecy as the coming Messiah. But that's not all he's doing. Uh, I think one of the best things that Matthew does here is that Matthew orders this, this book so that you would see that not only is Jesus Christ the promised one who's going to take away all your sins, who's going to, going to bear the wrath of God upon the cross and, and, and be crushed for your iniquity and be risen to give you hope on the last day, that, that he's, he's also the promised um, one from Deuteronomy 18.50 who's going to be like the new Moses. There's going to, Moses said, there's going to come one after me um, from your own people. Listen to him. And how Matthew organizes this gospel shows that Jesus Christ is the new Moses. So what he does, he breaks up this, the teachings of Jesus into five long sermons. Okay, five long sermons. And those of you who know Moses' life, we think that Moses wrote the five books of the law, right? Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and, and Deuteronomy. So what the way Jesus is being uh, talked about here is in these five sermons that he's giving that he is the new Moses. And where does the first big sermon that Jesus give happen at? It happens on the mountain. Chapter 5. Go to Matthew chapter 5. Now, we've already seen this kind of alluded to, right? So it said that uh, Jesus escaped down to Egypt, and then he came out of Egypt. So we think about Moses. What did Moses do? Moses was taken down to Egypt, and then Moses came out of Egypt. Right before Jesus was born, you see this Herod trying to kill all the the infants, right? What happened in in the ministry of Moses? He was tried to be killed himself uh, because he was... An infant. So you see all these illusions, and then you see this, this pinnacle in chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. And then you have the greatest sermon, in my opinion, that was ever been written. Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount. I promise you, if you memorize those words, it will never do you harm. It will challenge you. It will convict you. It will radically transform who you are because Jesus is reinterpreting the law here. Notice what he, what he, what he does. He kind of gives these, these blesseds, or many ways, are kind of like this new uh, Ten Commandments, these new blessings that God is giving. And then look at verse, um, beginning in verse uh, 17. Jesus says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. For whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of, of heaven. So if you watch what he does here, okay? So he talks about the, 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 the law. I've not come to abolish the law, but what? To fulfill the law. Now, if you saw in the first four chapters, what did Matthew already prove? 
Matthew has already proven that Jesus is the promised son of Abraham and the promised son of David, who has already fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament. And now he's going to clarify and redefine what the law actually is as the new Moses who gives the, the new law. And what is the new law? The new law is not only external, but the new law is, is internal. It's deeper than you thought it was under Moses. Look at verse 21. You have heard that it was said of, to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Verse 27, you heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery within his heart. Verse 31, it is also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but perform the to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, verse 38, you have heard that it was said that an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. What you see Jesus Christ doing here is he's redefining the law. He's reteaching it because the, the Jews of the Old Testament did not understand what the law meant. This is why the, the great young ruler, right, or the, the, the rich young ruler goes to Jesus and says, How must, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, what's the law? He says, do not kill, do not murder, do not commit adultery. All these I've kept since I was a boy. And Jesus looked at him and says, but you lack one thing. You don't love me from your heart. You have not given me everything. And Jesus redefines this. So if you are, are discipling a new believer, the book of Matthew is a great place to go. Because Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7 teaches you how to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even this morning when I said, how do you work out your, your faith, your salvation with fear and trembling? You read the Sermon on the Mount. And you ask yourself, am I angry with my brother? Do I have something against my brother? Have I, have I, do I have lustful intent in my heart? Do I love those who, who only love me? Or do I love the unlovable? Do I love the enemy of my, of my life? Do I, do I give to those who are in need? Or do I do things to be seen? And then you see that the, the great rebuke there at the end of chapter 7, verse 21. Let me just read 21 to the end of the chapter to kind of get a flavor of what Jesus is teaching here. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do not, we do not, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now take that in the context of a Jew who thinks they follow the law, that they externally did not commit murder. They externally did not commit adultery, but they may have broken these laws inside their heart. They misunderstood the law. They thought that, that they could obey the law. And they thought that their obedience to the law was going to get them to heaven. But by, by, by obedience to the law, no man is made righteous because there is no one righteous, no, not one. And look at verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall because he had been found on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and that great, and great was the fall of it. Verse 28, And when Jesus, Jesus finished these sayings, 
the crowd was astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. This is the one who had the authority who came down on the mountain and reinterpreted the law. Now, if you're reading this as a Jew for the first time, you would have picked up that they would have, he's, he's saying that Jesus is the new Moses. Do you remember why Stephen was killed in Acts chapter 7? He was killed because he was speaking against Moses and the law. But Matthew's trying to show, this is probably after Stephen had died, um, he's probably sh he's showing that Jesus is the new Moses. Absolutely fascinating. So if you look at the book of Matthew, the five big sermons, just so if you want to, you want to mark them down, you have Matthew 5 uh, through 7, uh, Matthew 10, Matthew 13, Matthew 18, and Matthew 24 and 25. These great sermons of the kingdom of God, of these parables. Uh, and then you have the, the all of that discourse at the end of the gospel. Uh, when I first heard that and I, and I saw what Matthew was doing here, then looking back, it makes the gospel so much more meaningful to me, right? When you put it in its proper context. Um, we also see throughout this book that, uh, that Jesus is the son of David. Several times throughout this gospel, you see that they ask that question, this, the son of David. Um, which I cannot find in my notes, but it's there, and it's there a lot. So read the Gospel of Matthew and, and find those notes, and you can let me know. Uh, the, the key turning point in the Gospel is the confession of Peter. So go to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. You see a lot of other people confessing Jesus, but you only see demons. And then you get to Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, and you see these words. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Now, he just spent 16 chapters explaining to you that he is the promised son of Abraham and the promised son of David. That he is the new Moses. And he's writing this book to a group of Jewish Christians, and he's saying, who do you say that I am? Do you see that Jesus is the, is the new Moses? That Jesus is the, the, the promised son of Abraham? He is the promised son of David. That question would have just hung as they would have heard it. And what happened? Simon replied, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered, and blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed on the third day and be raised. You see how it says that Peter rightly confesses who Jesus Christ is. And the very next thing that happens from that time on, he explains that my real purpose is not to come in victory, but to empty myself and become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, that if, you, if you understand Jewish line of thinking, that the promised seed of Abraham, 
the promised son of David, the new Moses, the one who's going to give us victory, has really come to die to pay for your sins upon the cross. Absolutely breathtaking. But many would have probably responded like like Peter did, who rebuked Jesus. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. The next chapter, chapter 17, you see, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up at the high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah. Right? What do you see? You see the law and the prophets, summarizing the whole Old Testament, talking with them. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, is it good that we are here? If you wish, I will make you three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. That probably would have been a scary moment for Peter. You know, we always give Peter a hard time, but like, should we make some tents? <laughs> should, we, should we hang out? Be buddies? Um, verse 5, he was still speaking when, behold, a, white, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, now, that cloud imagery is very important. Right? Think about the mountain of, of the Old Testament. What was surrounding the mountain when God spoke? You have this cloud enveloped. Matthew is giving specific stories of Jesus to show you that he is the new Moses. And then he hears this declaration. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Almost the same exact language of Deuteronomy 18.15. There is going to become a prophet from like you, from your own people. Listen to him. When Jesus was baptized, what did God say? He says, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Here he doesn't speak to Jesus. He speaks to the crowd. He says, this is my beloved son. So that everyone would know that this is the promised son of Abraham and the promised son of David. He is the new Moses who is going to come and redeem his people from their sins. Do you see how he's just building this argument again and again? Absolutely amazing. And then we go to his crucifixion. Uh, turn over to chapter 26. Beginning in verse 36. When Jesus went with them to the place called Gethsemane, he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go here and pray. And talking with him, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went and way and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and he found their eyes sleeping and their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went out, went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is portrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be, let us be going. Our betrayer is at hand. We go on to chapter uh, 27, verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus to the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. 
and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took a reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by, by, by name. They compelled this man to carry a cross. And they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. They offered him wine to drink and mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when he had crucified, when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put a charge against him that read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now, mind you, that they have, he has already proven that Jesus is the King of the Jews throughout this whole entire book. That would have been a rebuke to those who were reading it, as well to all of us. The two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel, let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Ali, Ali, limit sabachthim. Then he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to them to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out against the loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and the body of many saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion... And those who were with him kept watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They filled, were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Matthew has made his point that Jesus Christ is the promised one, but the promised one must die. And when he died, the curtain was split in two, giving us now direct access to God. That if anyone would call upon the name of Jesus and confess, like this centurion confessed, that Jesus is the Son of God, you will be taken right into His presence. You will be redeemed as one of His children. And notice this, not just for Jews, not just for Jews, but, but for all people, Jews and Gentiles. Look at how he ends this wonderful chapter, right? Chapter 28, wonderful book. Matthew 28. Verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go back and read the Gospel of Matthew and see how many times Jesus is talking about his own authority. He is showing that he is the promised son of Abraham, the promised son of David, the new Moses. He is the son of God who's been given all authority on heaven and earth. And this is what he tells his people. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the first thing that Jesus does, he points out that he is the promised one. 
And then he reinterprets the law for them, shows them how to truly live for Jesus. And then he tells all the, the Jews that if you truly want to live unto me, you don't just live unto me, but you live unto me for the world, so that the world may know that I am the Son of God. Now, if you're a Jew and you have read the Old Testament Scriptures, you would see again and again and again and again that Jesus Christ fulfilled all the promises of God. Think about that for us today. If Jesus Christ has fulfilled all the promises of the Old Testament, all the things he says in the New, all the things he says in the New, he will also fulfill. That all of us who close our eyes in death will one day open them in glory. And we'll hear those words that I will be your God and you will be my people. God is a promise keeper. The promises he makes are the promises that he keeps. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are God who keeps his promises. We thank you for uh, this wonderful gospel, the gospel of Matthew, how you show that Jesus Christ is the promised seed of Abraham and the promised son of David, that he is the new Moses, that he is the son of God. God, I pray that all of us here would live, would hold on to the promise of the scripture that Jesus Christ died and rose again to save his people from their sins. He did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So, dear God, I pray that we would see Jesus rightly, that we, like the centurion, would always confess that this truly is the Son of God. We love you, Lord. And we pray that you would help us understand your word more. We would better appreciate all that you have revealed yourself to be. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen.